Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We will be reading from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, It is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of the Lord, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. And his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with sounds of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, my God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. It's great to be with you all. We have been talking about how the Psalms uh, is a different type of genre in our scripture, how we, when we approach scripture, we should approach it differently based on the, the type of writing it is. And the Psalms is a, a writing of poetry. And so it's wise for us to come to Psalms in that posture. And what do we do with poetry? Well, we don't speed read it. We don't try to master it. What we do is we slowly take it in and we allow that to kind of excavate what's going on in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And so we've talked about that and I think we've kind of explored that together as a community. This week I've been thinking about how we, one thing we haven't talked about, which is one of the primary ways in which the church and the Christian tradition has used the Psalms, and the, and the Jewish tradition as well, is that the Psalms is not only a, a beautiful book of poetry and worship music, it's also, it's our prayer book that historically what people have been doing for thousands of years is they've been using the Psalms as a way of learning to pray. And so oftentimes, I personally do this in my own life, when I run out of a prayer for myself, I'm grateful that I can go to the Psalms and slowly pray through the Psalms knowing that I'm actually entering into a conversation that people have had with God for thousands and thousands of years. And so it's with that posture that we find oftentimes we look in the Gospels and we see that Jesus demonstrated this, that Jesus 
um, demonstrated that he knew the Psalms. He had prayed the Psalms so much that in his life and in his ministry, oftentimes he would utilize the words from Psalms to say what he wanted to express from his heart and his soul, what was going on. 17 different times in the Gospels, we find Jesus quoting the book that we're studying this summer. 17 different times, and especially you can find that Jesus used them in pivotal moments. When Jesus was preaching with the people, Jesus would recall the Psalms. Jesus tempted in the desert. Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus talking about how he would return. Instead of using his own words, he would recall the Psalms that he had prayed and internalized. If you were to imagine a sponge, when Jesus was squeezed, Psalms would come out. And I wonder, what comes out of you when you are squeezed? I know that sounds gross. Sorry. But if Jesus internalized the Psalms so that when life kind of pressed in on him and these Psalms would come out, if Jesus did this, how much more might we need the Psalms in our life to be our prayer guide, our prayer book together? So I personally am using this series for this summer not only to be you know, nine weeks where we're looking at the book of Psalms together, but I'm also using this time to slow down and use the Psalms to pray. And so personally, what I'm doing in my prayer time is I'm choosing a Psalm and I'm slowly praying through it. Sometimes I change the words a little bit to mirror what's going on in my own life. And I do this in part to enter into a tradition that Jesus invited us into. So it's with that in mind, I think Psalm 27 is a perfect way for us to come to God in prayer. So Psalm 27, let's turn to that. If you were to look at Psalm 27, it seems that we have two different movements happening in this 14-verse psalm. Some scholars actually believe that Psalm 27 was originally two different writings that were brought together at a later time. Verses 1 through 6 are this psalm of joyful confidence, It's this celebration. And then there's this turn in in verse 7, which we enter into a lament where this person, the psalmist David, is talking about how he's pressing into God, though he's being falsely accused. He's someone who's experiencing rejection even from his own parents. And in the midst of that threat, David is trying to engage and connect and abide with God. The psalmist is feeling this two different emotions at the same time. He's feeling under attack, and yet he is retaining this this confidence in needing to go to God in worship. And I'm curious, if you can recall a time where you felt a bit mixed like that, where maybe you felt a bit rejected or under attack, where you felt a bit misunderstood and disconnected from those people who were once your safe place, where people whom you trusted turned on you and you maybe you felt exposed. Just take a moment and just kind of situate yourself in that memory and in that emotion. Maybe that is even you today. It's from that place where David was writing this psalm, where David was encountering God in prayer and worship. And it begins with declaring who God is. It begins like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
this declaration begins on not only in just this beautiful sense of faithful worship, but it was also in the presence of something, fear. This moment that David was encountering God in worship was actually embedded in the location of fear. Fear is incredibly powerful. It can do a lot. What we know now with brain imaging is we are able to see what happens in the brain when someone encounters fear. We have learned a lot together with that. When someone is afraid, they have a tendency to move all of their action to a particular part of the brain called the amygdala. This, other people call it the lizard brain. <laughs> it's the most elementary part of the way in which our brain works, and it's the place in our brain that's responsible for fear, anger, and basic self-preservation. When someone is struck with real fright, it seems like all of the attention and energy moves there to that one little part of the brain that's all about self-preservation. And what researchers can tell us now is that when people camp out there, people who like exist in a, in a posture of fear, what happens is it cuts back the ability to do other things. It, it, fear is much like Velcro. It's clingy. It sticks. It's like that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend that you really wanted to part ways with. They just stick around. That's how fear is. It's like a part of this brain that it's just, we can't shake it. Unlike joy and delight, it's like, cellophane. It just flows away. But fear has a stickiness. And what researchers can tell us is that when the amygdala is activated, higher forms of thought process, they cannot happen. One person with with their amygdala triggered, they cannot dream. Creativity is impossible. Hopeful imagination is non-existent. And I'm curious, where is fear alive in your life? Is it a situation? Is it a relationship? Is it something that's happening in our society, in our culture right now? Is it a place where you felt vulnerable? This psalmist is trying to encourage us, I believe. The psalmist is trying to encourage us, not by saying, stop being afraid. What David is doing is he's entering into a conversation by doing something first and foremost. He's declaring who God is in the presence of this situation, this threat, this attack. In the presence of fear, God, you are my light in darkness. You have given me a salvation. It's in your name. You are my stronghold. That word stronghold is lost on us, but it's, it's like a fortress. When a town is being under attack, all the people go to that stronghold where they know there's a provision, where they can be there for a long time to hopefully uh, to, to sit out before the enemy can take you in. So it's this specific place where people go to flee when they are feeling attack. That is who David is saying, God, you are that for me. Though an army is coming against me, the war is surrounding me, I have a hope because I have shelter in you. And I find this next part of this psalm beautiful and really challenging. What does David do? He says this, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Notice, what is the one thing that David wants? It's not what you and I would probably pray for or ask or expect. He's not saying, the one thing I want is take 
my enemies down. Like, make them suffer. Punish them. Like, that's what I think all of us would want. That's probably what that lizard brain would want, right? Like, take away that threat. But instead, David is longing for something else. His one thing that he's needing, the one thing he's longing for, is not justification or violence. David wants to go to God and to be with God in worship, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze or behold the beauty that God has and to sing him in his temple. I feel like when we're under attack, that's probably, that's, well, I'll just speak for myself. That's not my first inclination. <laughs> my first inclination is not to get away with God, to behold him. But yet for David, this is his lifeline. His lifeline is not an enemy or a new strategy. It's beholding God in worship, in prayer, in abiding connection to dwell with God and to gaze upon his beauty. I think David is doing this, is saying this. There's so much wisdom here because what we give our attention to is powerful. A friend of mine mountain bikes, and I try that every, every once in a while, and I, I don't know if I have lower back pains or I just don't enjoy it, but I don't do it anymore. But I talked to my friend about it, and I, he's pretty advanced. And in talking to him, I said, so I get a little bit panicky on like an advanced course. Like riding around Town Lake, I'm easily up for that. But if you're going on something more extreme, like how do you ensure that you don't get in trouble? And he said, well, what are you looking at when you're going on these paths? And I'm like, well, I'm looking at the rock I shouldn't hit. I'm looking at the branch that's a little too low. And he said, you're looking at the complete wrong thing. He said, pretty much, <clears throat> the bike will go wherever your eyes go. And so if you look at that rock, don't be surprised if you're going to turn into that rock. If, you're, if there's a small sliver of the pathway in which you could navigate, you've got to look there because that is eventually where your bike will turn. For me, I think there's this deep spiritual connection to that idea of like whatever we give our attention to, there our heart will go to. There our soul will travel to. And so if we're focusing on the voice of the enemy, the presence of a threat, and that's the only thing we give ourselves to, we should not be surprised if we get locked into fear, into this posture that holds us back from the, the deeper things that we should be doing to care for our soul, the hopeful imagination that we are called to have. And so it is for the spiritual life. If we give our attention to anxiety that we find, that's stirring in our news cycles, we will be formed by it. I'm not saying we should be oblivious to it, but I'm saying the one thing that we need in this world is to be with God and be with God for the sake of this world, in this world, but our attention should be on the refuge that we have in Jesus in the midst of being surrounded by struggle, conflict, We should not be surprised that wherever our attention goes, there our heart will go as well. David knows that his greatest need is to remember the goodness and loyalty of God, to leave the panic, the noise, and the anxiety of the world for a moment, to remember that there is a Savior who knows him by name. David declares this because he knows that, in verse 5, for in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. I think in the psalm, there's a symmetry going on here that's really important for us to see. It's about where his attention was going and where he is provided for. If you can't go to the next slide, see here. What we see here is that the, the, 
the longing to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple is leading to this experience within his soul that dwelling in the house of the Lord will provide, will keep me safe in his dwelling. To gaze upon the Lord provides a shelter in the sacred tent. And to seek him in his temple sets him upon a rock. I think the symmetry that David is writing here is trying to show us that what we are giving our attention to provides for us the very things that we need, especially when we're feeling under attack. But this is what's happening here. And it's after, it's after uh, this view of God has been established, after these first verses have been said and worshipped and declared to God, that David then turns to the second half. This is when he turns to the, the lament, the declaring to God, the longing for God, for God to show up and to move to change things. And so it's here that David says, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my Savior, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes or false witnesses. Uh, They rise up against me spouting malicious accusations. The refuge, I think this is so important for us, especially on uh, on days like today, that the refuge that David has with the Lord is not only a refuge to escape the world and to experience a refuge of care, but it's also a safe place to bring our honest lament to God. The refuge that God wants to get us is not just so we just cocoon and escape this world and escape conflict, but it's actually to go to God so that we, as Eugene Peterson beautifully says, so that we can cuss without cussing. (laughs) That's what he sees in these psalms of lament, that we can go to God and be honest, to lament to God. Some might object and say, I think God just wants the first half of the psalm and not the second half. Does God really want me to bring that kind of honesty? And when we have that picture of God, that just God just wants the happy-go-lucky part of ourselves, what we do is we deny our feelings and our experiences. We truncate our life from the the having our experience with God be pervasive in all of our experiences. We compartmentalize what it means to live and abide with God in worship and connection. You know, as a parent, I want our home, I want my relationship with my kids, I want the safest place for them to bring their anxieties and their fears. I want that to be with me. And what I've had to learn to do is when they bring to me their frustrations, their anger, it, my job is not to edit them. Like, oh, I hear you, but let me tell you why that, let me tell you why your sadness is a little wrong. Let me tell you why your fear is a little misplaced. When I'm on my A game as a parent, I recognize that my relationship with my kid, the greatest thing I can provide for them is a safe place to bring all of their stuff to me without the feeling that maybe I'm going to edit and change and alter what they're feeling I want to be a safe place because I know that is when we are honest with each other, and I would say honest with God, that is when healing takes place. I heard someone, um, a black theologian, said, until we can name, until we can name our experiences, uh, we cannot experience healing. And I think when we lament to God, we're naming the things to God that's just not right. And it's until we have the boldness to name them to God 
that we, it's until we have that boldness that God can bring his healing work in our life. Without pretension or image curating, it's about being honest to God, a God who's big enough for your honesty. And David concludes this psalm after, after having this beautiful declaration of like, you know, just abundance of faith and hope. And then after this lament that David concludes with this, he says in verse 13 and 14, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I just I think that that future tense is really important, that David is assured that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he almost speaks to his own soul, almost like having a conversation with himself. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. Though David is assured of deliverance, he also knows that God's deliverance is also in God's timing. And sometimes that is hard. Sometimes that's difficult. And what David is saying, almost to his own heart, almost to his own soul, is wait for him. It's worth it to wait for him, to take heart, to take courage, and wait for God. Who here loves to wait, though? Nobody, nobody loves to wait. I was struck by this when I read a theologian recently. This theologian is called Dr. Seuss. And he, you know, the only book that we buy for newborns and high school graduates is what book? Oh, the places you'll go. In this grand journey that this uh, cartoon figure is moving through throughout his world and his experience, right in the middle of his journey is a place called The Waiting Place. Yeah. Can I read a little bit of Dr. Seuss? You guys okay with that? Feel free to get in your nap position if you want. You can move back to your childhood. This is The Waiting Place. This is how Dr. Seuss explains the experience that happens in all our journeys. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled roads at a breck-naking pace, and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, towards a most useless place, the waiting place, waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for a Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. That's part of the journey that Dr. Seuss would say. But notice what he called it, a most useless place. Our world shares the same view as Dr. Seuss does. It's just useless. And so we have gotten really good at not waiting. Like we are really good at not waiting. We, are, we have found efficiencies to get out of waiting. And even in our waiting, we find ways to get out of the waiting, even though we're stuck in the DMV or whatever it might be. I mean, I look back on my childhood and waiting was just a part of my life experience. Do you guys remember taking pictures? And every time you would click the picture, 
you would hear film move from one side to another. Then we would drop them off at different places. And if they were called express photo delivery, you would wait for an hour until you could see the pictures you took. No filter, no editing, just paper, paper photos. Anyone remember that? Or do you remember sitting by a radio and hoping you would hear that song? For me personally, I would sit by the radio and if with my fingers on the record button on my ju- like my little jam box because I wanted to record that new uh, song that was coming out by you know whatever band that was. Or you remember uh, trying to call someone, but because they were not near the place that had a phone attached to the wall, you couldn't talk to them. And so you would call them and call them and call them. And if anyone in your home tried to make a phone call, you just shut down communication. No one can call right now because I'm waiting on a phone call. And now we live in a world where we have tracking numbers for the, pur- the purchases we make online. We have apps to order our Starbucks so we can walk straight in or walk straight out with our favorite latte. We can download from our couch an entire movie within like 30 seconds and play it. Do you guys remember this place? You guys remember that? You would go and you would look at the cover and be like, oh no, there's nothing behind it, you know? That's a very different experience. We are living in an await-avoidant society, and I wonder how this has crept into our spirituality, our spiritual experiences with God. And I wonder, even more importantly, I wonder what we miss out on by our inability to wait and to watch for God. The psalm speaks to the importance of waiting. David refutes Dr. Seuss's assumption that it's not useless. It's so very important because in the longings that we have, maybe the longings for security and justice, we can either passively just tune out or we can call it to our own hearts and our souls like wait for God. We can be active and faithful in our waiting. We can go to sacred spaces in our communities, in our homes or in church, and we could seek to behold Jesus As the psalmist said here, we can center our lives in the promises of Jesus in the midst of what was promised and what we're experiencing now, and we can set our gaze upon him. And friends, that forms us. It moves us out of the amygdala and reminds us of a bigger story. It enlarges also our capacity to to embrace the thing as when it finally comes, it finally arrives. That ability to faithfully wait is creating capacity in and for whatever God has. And that is what we find here in this psalm. The psalmist is trying to tell us that there is a God who is a deliverer, a stronghold, and a refuge. And even though you might be misunderstood, and even though you might feel under attack, and even though you are longing for deliverance, you can wait faithfully for God. I'd like to conclude this morning with an invitation and a story. This is the invitation. If the psalms are our prayer book, If there is wisdom in having these psalms inside of us, I think we need to internalize them. And so the invitation I'd like to extend for you all, if at the end of this nine-week series, which we're about three weeks into it, is I'd encourage each of us to have a psalm that we've memorized. 
So I know this is kind of old school, but I would actually encourage us to have a psalm that we have read and internalized so that when life squeezes you, you have words to recall, you have words to hold on to, you have something that can, you can hang on to. There are times where I go and visit people in a hospital. What they want to hear from me is not just a prayer. Oftentimes they will say, could you say a psalm for me? This is a longing to have an anchor that goes deeper than our own experiences to remember there's a stronghold. And so I'd encourage you, whether it's Psalm 27 or a different psalm, for you during this experience to try to memorize a psalm. Um, There's a reason why, for me, I chose this psalm. It holds a special meaning in my life, a specific situation. So 17 years ago, I proposed to my wife, Jen. This is a picture of around that time, babies, just little babies. Um, And when I proposed to her, uh, we were living on different sides of a duplex, and I was a college minister. And a week after I proposed to her, we took a bunch of college students on a mission trip to Nicaragua. And so we spent that week visiting hospitals, caring for people, building things, uh, and developing relationships with the people and the churches there of Nicaragua. One of the experiences I had there is we, ha- we visited a hospital. And I went to visit the hospital without knowing any Spanish. Like I took German for some reason in high school. And so I went there and where I was at the hospital and I sat next to this sweet woman. And she held my hand and she pulled out a Bible. This is her. I don't know why I took a picture at that moment, but I'm so glad I did. So she held her Bible and... Um, because we couldn't talk to each other, we just read scripture to each other. And so she opened up her Bible to Psalm 27, and she started pointing at it. And so she and I just spent some time just reading Psalm 27 back and back and forth to each other. And I just remember her bony little finger pointing at Psalm 27. Um, a couple days later, we sent all the college students home. We, re- we only had a certain number of flights, so Jen and I um, stayed back one extra night. At the place we were staying... Uh, we were told that there was a little mountain behind the encampment that we were in. We were in a walled-in encampment. We were told there's a little mountain and there's a trail and we could go see a sunset. So we had it perfectly timed, guys. We went up the mountain, newly engaged. We took a picture up there. We had a great time. Saw the sun was beginning to set. We were instructed, make sure to be back before the sun's down because it's dangerous out here. What we didn't know is that someone was decapitated right outside our camp the week before. Maybe that would have been good to know. So we started coming down the mountain perfectly timed, and then the slow panic started to come within my heart, and I could slowly see it in Jen's face, which was, we're on the wrong side of the mountain. Right as the sun was setting, this is good for her to know as we are just engaged that Mark means well, but maybe not the best with directions. Okay, so we are coming down from the mountain. The sun is getting dark. And so begins the longest night of our life. So we are lost. It's dark. We don't know Spanish. We don't have any lights. We don't have a phone. All we have is a Nalgene bottle. And what happened in that night was we spent the next hours wandering around in the dark. We almost fell off a cliff. We had a a pack of wild dogs attack us at one point. And all I had was my Nalgene bottle that was half full And uh, somehow we warded them off. And then finally, finally, we saw the outlines of walls that was our camp. And just like, yes, we're back. We're safe. And as we got closer, we started hearing people running and random whistling. 
Within a couple of seconds, we were surrounded by a dozen or so men in fatigues holding AK-47s. What we didn't realize is that wasn't our camp. We had just walked over to a Nicaraguan military base. And they thought that we were spies. Guys, I was wearing a Yo Heart Nicaragua t-shirt, the most touristy t-shirt you could get. And they thought we were spies. And, and within a moment, uh, Jen was saying some things, and all I remember is in a moment we were surrounded, and we were told to get on our knees in Spanish, and we had our hands behind our head, and this is when it got real, is the people in front of us cleared out. And so we had AK-47s behind our heads, and we, we, people were screaming at us in Spanish. And I can't explain it, but the weirdest thing happened. Psalm 27, the psalm that was being read to me, this woman was ensuring I'm reading back and forth with her, started spilling out of my mind and into my soul. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be confident. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. I don't know what I would have done if that angel that I think God sent to me that earlier in that trip hadn't prepared me for that moment, especially because Jen was screaming, run, run. <laughs> but I'm convinced that God, through God's word, through this psalm, gave us a stronghold, a light in darkness, a salvation and deliverance and reason to take heart. So spoiler alert, we made it back home it's safe. After 16 more hours of soldiers and police and the U.S. Embassy got involved and angry missionaries and things like that, and I came back home and my roommate had just thrown a keg party the night before, it was a lot, guys. It was just a lot. But this psalm will forever be etched in my mind because I have seen how God can use these prayers and these songs written thousands of years to be a stronghold, an anchor, a lifeline. How God will use these psalms to give words of prayers that we can hold on to in times of trouble when we run out of our own words. And I say that in part because I know some of people today feel under attack. Under attack from anxiety, from sadness, from trends in our world, from people maybe you've trusted that have turned on you. And I just want to say, just as David said, when he was talking about seeking in his temple, I just want to say that, friends, you are in the right place. Because this space has been set aside to remind you that you have a refuge in Christ. You have a mighty fortress that you can find refuge in and security in, and that you have a promise from God that you will experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so our job is to be honest with God and to wait for the Lord. Not a passively wait, but a faithful, hope-filled, ready-to-move kind of waiting. So friends, do so. Wait for the Lord and be strong and take heart and wait for God. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.